Well, for anyone who's visiting, I think you probably noticed that we have a lot of young people here. Uh, just an amazing number of young people in the congregation that kind of creeped up over the years. Uh, they were little, now they're, they're just a little bit bigger than little. And uh, they're teenagers and they're young adults and they're getting married. And last year we had a record number of marriages, I believe, here. And this year we're having a record number of births from uh, both those marriages and others. Uh, we were looking at, I don't know, 12, 14 births this year in this congregation or those associated with the congregation one way or the other. And that's uh, wonderful news. Raising children is probably the hardest job you'll ever have. And it's, uh, it, it's just not easy in any way, shape, or form. But one thing about it, children grow up very quickly. And those who are older recognize that. They just, we just see them as, as little kids. And next thing you know, uh, they're not little kids anymore. And they're teenagers. And then they're off and getting married. And so we, we see them growing up very quickly. And the responsibility of a parent is, is tremendous because you have the opportunity to shape that life in such a way to guide that life in a, in a direction where that child can eventually be born as a child of God into the family of God at the resurrection and be a member of the God family for all of eternity. And I can't think of any greater reward than uh, seeing that child that you help raise uh, be a part of the, the family of God. I was in a church area some years ago where we had some really strong families. And one of the, the families, I know they had four children. They were very successful in every way. One of them eventually had an engineering firm and about six different firms really under the same roof, uh, architecture, uh, uh, engineering. Uh, he had uh, surveying crew and he had several others. He structured it that way for liability reasons. But I remember visiting there, and he had about 80 employees at the time, and they'd just come out of a meeting deciding whether to bid on a job that was going to cost them $40,000. And this was quite a few years ago, just to bid the job with no guarantee that they would be given the job. And it was a major uh, chore, and, and they uh, oftentimes the firm has already been picked out, but for appearance's sake, they have to have several bids and so forth. So they were having to decide that, pretty heavy decisions. But... Very successful a young man and his siblings all did very well. Uh, we had a lot of young people that came out very well. But we also had a few problems, and I'll just mention a few that uh, go back during that period of time that I was there and uh, the year two or three before that. But they had one that turned, uh, uh, turned out to be a prostitute, a female prostitute. There was another one that was a male prostitute. There were those that were bank robbers and uh, using, you know, robbing at gunpoint. Uh, there were quite a few that had children outside of wedlock. That was the more typical problem. Uh, they left the church and didn't do very well and ended up being single mothers and other problems like that. And over a period of years, if you figure just two children going the wrong way, it can add up. In 10 years, that can be... Uh, you know, 2 times times 10 is 20. Well, uh, 
in that period of time, I, I looked over the records, and again, I'm going back a, a couple, two, three, four years before I got there, as well as while I was there, and I had 40 names of young people that had not done very well. And so I wrote them down. I wrote the names down, and I wrote the whatever it was that they got in trouble with, and then I, I wrote down the, the family name and why I thought that young person or two or three in some families had gone astray. And what was amazing was that it wasn't hard to find out the problem. Uh, it, it was remarkable how obvious the problems were. In some cases, a, an unconverted father who molested his children. In another case, it was, uh, you know, an overly permissive situation where the kids did no wrong. Or, on the other hand, there were some where the parents were so strict that the kids couldn't do anything right. I remember one family, uh, the mother in this particular case, was always gossiping and putting down everyone, including the ministry and all that sort of thing, and then wonders why the children left the church. It was obvious in every particular case. It wasn't even hard to find the reason for any single one of the 40. It, it, it was shocking. So I changed all the names, scrambled everything around, and I used to, to read that to people just to, to give the list of all the things that happened. I, I actually found that last night, but I decided not to take the time to go through it. But it was remarkable how easy it was to see what the problems were in those cases or what the background was that created the success in other children. Now, this does not imply that every parent will be successful with every child because our children have to make their own decisions. But there are general trends that you can look to, and there are some that probably have done a not a very good job, but the children turn out all right in spite of it. So you have those situations. This afternoon I'm going to give four points on successful parenting. But before I do, I want to address the elephant in the room, as well as to make a confession. Now, the elephant in the room is probably what may be going through a few minds today, and that is, who do you think you are talking about child-rearing when you don't even have children? Well, that's a fair enough question. I'll get to the confession in just a minute. There are four reasons why I would be talking about this subject today. First of all, there are laws that are found in the Bible, principles that work, and these can be observed in the lives of other individuals. You can see how people put them into practice, and you can see that it works. And when you violate those principles, you can also see that that works in a different direction, too. So we don't have to have children to be able to observe what is happening and to be able to read what God says. It's also sometimes awkward for ministers to speak on this subject when they have growing children because everybody is looking at them and saying, they're looking at their kids and, well, that's a hypocrite. He says, do thus and such, yet he does something else. I've seen that on more than one occasion. 
Local ministers are reluctant to speak on the subject where they only have one family in the church, these smaller congregations, with children. So you talk about child-rearing in a small congregation where you only have one family with kids, and that pretty well puts them on the spot. But we're safe here, aren't we? Because we have lots of children here, lots of young people, and a lot more to come for the years out. And so from time to time, we need to speak on that from this congregation, which we don't hear very often, so that it'll go out and take the pressure off the local minister and uh, allow a, a subject to be given there uh, to help out with children. I'd like to also say that after, you know, living as long as I have, and it's, uh, it's hard to believe sometimes how old we get, how quickly we get there, but I've observed a lot of others over the years and tried to take note of what works and what doesn't with, with parents. And I've had 28 years of experience at summer camps where you work with in some cases, hundreds of young people, and that gives you a certain level of experience as well. And so I don't have the, 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 the one-on-one experience that many of you have as a parent, but I've also noticed that there are some parents who have had lots of kids. I remember a lady in the church, when I first came into the church, she didn't want to listen to a, a minister uh, even if they did have kids, because she had more than they did, and she thought she was more experienced, and she didn't have a clue about raising children. So just having children doesn't make you an expert. But there is something about having children that you understand things that those who don't are never going to understand, because there are those day-to-day experiences that you go through. And you can take a principle, but you have to learn how to apply it to this child and how to apply a different principle to another child and so forth. So you really do have to have children to fully understand the the big picture of things. But at the same time, we can talk about basic principles that we could all really agree upon or should be able to agree upon, but just need to be reminded of them from time to time. Now for the confession. I very likely would be a lousy parent because knowing a principle and applying it are two different matters. And I mean that very sincerely. I'm not just saying that to say it. I I, I really do believe sincerely that I could be a, a lousy parent if I had children because human emotions and energy come into play. Children can wear you down, wear you out. And your emotions get in the way. And you know you should do one thing, but the emotions tell you to do something else. So I'm not standing up here condemning anyone for uh, the situation that you may be in, whether good or bad. It's not easy being a parent. In fact, I do believe it's probably the, the most difficult chore that you'll ever have in this life if you are a parent. So let's get on with four basic principles for successful child-rearing. They're very basic, and some of them you probably already know, but hopefully there'll be some points along the line that, that will be helpful. The first one is it begins with example. It begins with example. It's so important 
for every parent to set the right example. And as I mentioned in an article that I wrote for the Tomorrow's World magazine, Why Kids Go Wrong, it was really taken from a presentation I heard, uh, Why Christian Children Go Wrong. And the number one reason is hypocrisy. Children see hypocrisy. Now, they don't realize that they are hypocrites, too, our teenagers. They know the face to put on here, but most of them have another face when they're off with their friends away from mom and dad and the rest of us. They may be, not be huge hypocrites, but they, you know, they, they, uh, they have their problem with hypocrisy. How, how do these adults, how do your parents become hypocrites? Well, they started at a young age, and they just practiced a long time. So we all have that problem. We all do hypocritical things. It doesn't mean that we are by nature hypocrites, but we can do hypocritical things, and we have to, you know, kids will overlook that. They'll understand that that's not, that's not mom and dad normally, that this is abnormal for mom and dad, and they'll, they'll overlook that. But if you have a life of hypocrisy, you're preaching one thing, but you're doing something totally different all the time, they're going to pick up on that. But it begins with example. The Bible shows us the importance of example in a number of places. For example, uh, John, the 13th chapter, and this was Jesus in this particular case, giving an example to the apostles, but also to us. John 13 and verses 14 and 15. This was where he washed the disciples' feet. And it says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I've done it, then you ought to do it as well. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, in this particular case, he didn't just give them the example, but he told them that this is what they ought to do. So he followed up the example of what he did, reminding them that I've done this for your sake, for your benefit. And sometimes I suppose that that should be stated, but the most part is just the example that we set for our children. Notice 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul wanted the, the people to follow his example. It was a reminder. He's talking to adults here. Children just tend to follow the example of parents uh, by nature up to a certain point. But with adults, we sometimes have to remind one another. But he says in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians in verse 1, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So he's saying, I'm imitating Christ, you should imitate me or follow my example. And it's important that we learn to follow the right examples in life. That, that's really important because sometimes people follow the wrong examples. We should know where it is that we ought to look for the right example. And I think that's especially important in today's world when it's everybody do your own thing. And people are out here doing things totally contrary to the Scriptures, but they think that's the right thing to do. And people are willing to follow those things. So he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Over in 1 Peter 2, 
1 Peter 2 and verse 21. We're very familiar with this. We often read this at the time of Passover. I'll start in verse 20. It says, For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, how often do we take offenses patiently or punishment patiently, whatever it might be? He says, for to this you are called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So Peter is reminding them that Jesus had an attitude of humility and an attitude of service and patience, and he wants us to follow that example. That's an example that we should follow. So example is very important with God. One last scripture on this subject is 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. And and here we find that the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy on how he can be a successful minister evangelist, how he can be successful. And he's a young man, and so because he was a young man, there would be those in the congregation who would think, well, how can you know anything about this because you're just a young man and would not have the respect for him that they should. But he tells them the way to gain that respect. He says, let no one despise your youth, Verse 12, this is 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and he says here, in purity. So as a young man, conduct yourself according to purity. And according to faith, exercising faith, the right spirit, in love and in conduct. Do all these things, and if you do those things, people will grow in their respect for you. And so he says, don't let somebody despise you. Just do what is right. Do the things that are right, and the rest will follow. You know, little children by nature imitate their parents. My wife was watching one time. We had a Tomorrow's World presentation and there was a kind of like a stage in, in the back where uh, several people were, were, you know, had to sit because we had more people than we had anticipated in that particular uh, presentation. And she was noticing that one of the, the ministers that was there who had a, a younger child, he would sit on the stage and he'd cross his leg and his son would cross his leg. And he'd follow all the things that his dad was doing. And we have the example of the advertisement many years ago when they were advertising in smoking and it shows a father smoking and the young man, you know, picking up something as though he was imitating his father. How often do young people follow the example of mom and dad? Now we say that when they get older, they don't follow the example. Yes, they do, even as teenagers. They follow the example of how you drive if you're reckless Uh, If you're sane, they may not follow that example. They usually tend to follow our bad habits. 
But they follow the example of how you treat others, whether you gossip about others uh, constantly, or whether you respect authority. If you disrespect authority, your kids are going to disrespect authority, and they'll do you one better. They'll disrespect, disrespect your authority. These are things that happen. And so as little children try to be just like mom and dad, as teenagers, they may try to go away from being everything like mom and dad, but without realizing it, they follow your example. And usually, it's not the good example you set, it's the bad example that you set, although they also follow good examples where they have respect for you. So the first thing is, it all begins with example. And I don't think that's really controversial in any way. It's, it's very important. Uh, we can jump to other solutions, but example is, is key. The second point that I want to give here is loving instruction is a must. We have to give instruction, and it must be given out of love. We could look through the scriptures. We could start back in the book of Genesis and see that God wants us to instruct our children. And this is something that is a, a task that every parent has on a continuous basis, a daily basis, in every circumstance. But let's begin with the 18th chapter of Genesis. We'll just hit a few high points here. In Genesis 18... And uh, talking about Sodom, and God is talking with Abraham, in verse 17 it says, And the Eternal said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now God shows this individual for a very special calling, as we all know. Then in verse 19, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the, the eternal to do righteousness and justice that the eternal may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now some of the more modern translations have this, For I have known him that he may uh, do these things, that he may order his children as opposed to the way it's written here, which is, is a sense that I know that he will. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how you want to translate it, the point is that Abraham was to instruct his children in the way of God. And it's very clear that he knew that he would do so, that the transmission of the truth would go from generation to generation on down uh, through the centuries, through the years. So he was to instruct his children. Let's notice also in Exodus, the 13th chapter, we have the Exodus that has occurred, and or at least the beginning of it. They've walked through, or getting ready to walk through the Red Sea. They're on their way. And here in Exodus 13 and verse 7, it says, Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out up from the land of Egypt. So 
here's an instruction that God gave to Israel, and we are the Israel of God today, and so we have the same instruction for us to explain what we're doing during the Days of Unleavened Bread. It is not good enough just to bring your children to church and let the minister explain it. This is something that you need to be explaining to them as you sit, by the way, as you uh, eat, as you conduct yourself. What does it really mean? that we are to come out of sin, we are to put sin out of our lives. And what is sin? And be able to talk to those things to our children. And I think that probably most of you do that. But if you don't, then you need to start. And even if you do, maybe it's good to uh, spend a little bit more time and not to assume just because they are older that they know these things. There's nothing wrong with reminding our teenagers in a tactful way. That's, that's, that's where you as a parent probably have a good idea what you can get away with and what you can't. Uh, there's some things you don't want to just shove down their throat in, in a way that is going to be uh, you know, offensive or, or troublesome to them. But at the same time, if we neglect to teach them, if we neglect to bring out these lessons, and sometimes even doing so in a way that maybe they get tired of hearing it, but it is important that they understand it. One of the things that I learned from Mr. Lambert Greer many years ago when we were at summer camp working together, he said, what you tell a young person today will not sink in for four years or more. <laughs> and just, I think the other day, we were talking about going up the, the stairs, and I think I mentioned, and I forget who I was talking with, they said the same thing, their parents uh, got really upset when you go up the stairs and you put your hands up against the wall and your hands are usually grubby, and so pretty soon there's this mark going all the way, up, the way up the stairs. I remember my parents telling me that. Get your hands off the walls. Use the rail. Uh, but they told us over and over and over again. Had to remind us because it didn't sink in. Now, you know, 60 years later, 70 years later... Uh, 70, 60, 68 years later, it sunk in. Actually, a little bit before that. But I understand now why they said that. Because it's dirty, then you either have to wash it or you have to paint it. And either one, it's work and it's, it's uh, costly. Uh, either work or costly or, or both. So we, we teach them lessons that may not sink in today, but in time they do. And that's, that's really very important that we understand that. Back in uh, uh, Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, probably the most famous passage on this subject about teaching our children, Deuteronomy 6. These are all very familiar scriptures. He says in verse 5, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So that has to be a part of our whole being, that we love God, we love His ways. We want to live His ways, and we set the example of that. And then in verse 6, he says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. This is a part of you. This is what makes you who you are. You shall teach them diligently to your children. These words, and the words that he had spoken there in just the previous chapter was, the Ten Commandments, and there are other commands that he gives there. 
But he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, not passively, not just every once in a while, but teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you sit by the, or walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. So from the time they get up in the morning to the time you put them in bed, and maybe even after you put them in bed before they go to sleep, you talk to them, and you let them know about these things, especially when they're small. When they're a teenager, I don't know that you're you know, putting them to bed. I hope you don't have to do that. But, uh, you know, it, it is important that we, that we teach our children from the time they get up to the time that they go to bed and teach them in unusual ways. I may have given this example to you here once before. Uh, I remember Mr. Floyd Kilcheski, our site manager at Orr, Minnesota, and he talked about the time, I think I wrote about this maybe, um, where he was in this particular uh, place having lunch, and his father took a, a nickel out, and he set it up on the edge and had uh, young Floyd, just a very small child, uh, look at it, and he said, uh, he said uh, Floyd, uh, whose is that? He said, well, it's yours, Daddy. He said, now, if you take it and you run off with it, what does that make you? He said, well, I'd be stealing he said, that's right, you're a thief. And it doesn't matter whether it's five cents or $500, you're still a thief. It's still the same. And that was a lesson that he learned at age, I don't know, six, five, six, seven, that stuck in his mind his whole life. The amount is not important. It's what you do. That's a lesson that can be taught. Uh, there are thousands of lessons like that where a little bit of ingenuity can put it in such a way that it sticks in the mind of a child. And those are lessons that are very important at a very early age. Teach them diligently unto your children. He says, you shall bind them, verse 8, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, in what they do and what they think. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, they literally did that, and some of you have the Ten Commandments posted in your house someplace, but it really does need to be in our heart, and we need to teach them uh, these things. Over in Psalm 78, the 78th Psalm, there's another passage that's very famous here. And I'm, I'm going to begin in verse 5. It says, For he, that is God, established a testimony in Jacob, Psalm 78, verse 5. And he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. So he commanded Israel to make these laws known to their children. This is an admonition for you and me, that the children to come might know them the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. So going from children to more children or grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Verse 8, It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So he 
expects us to train our children so that they'll train their children and on down through the generations. And we have many examples in the church where we have second, third, fourth, even as much as fifth generation in the truth these days. Not too often fifth generation, but third and fourth generation is not uh, totally rare in the church anymore because somebody passed that on, their example, their way of life, the dedication and zeal that they had for God, that it was in their heart, and that was passed on to the next generation, and they then passed it on to another generation. And it often involves a, a, a marriage, a, you know, parents who have stayed together, who have worked together, uh, where they've made right decisions early on, and then the next generation tends to make better decisions or at least as good as decisions on that, as opposed to so often in broken homes, uh, it, it is a handicap. It just is. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means that it's harder to do it. But to pass it on from one generation to another. We have the scripture that people have tried to read it in a lot of different ways. Proverbs 22 Proverbs 22 and verse 6. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or as some have it, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there, there have been those who have tried to change the meaning of this to say that train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll come back to it. But that's not what it says. It says that when he is old, when he does get old, he, he's still not going to depart from it. In other words, it's going to be a part of his life, his whole life. And, of course, train is the key word there. Train. In other words, active teaching and instruction. It's not something that just happens by accident. It's something that requires effort on the part of every parent. And I can only imagine what it's like for those of you who have little ones, uh, they wear me out in a real big hurry. Uh, so I can only imagine what it would be like with them 24 hours a day. And you are glad when they, can, they go to sleep at night. Uh, you can have some rest. But that's part of being a parent. That's what your parents did for you, what my parents did for me. They, they put up with a lot of nonsense, a lot of foolishness, a lot of why questions. A lot of childish things. And that's just the way it is. But it says, train up a child in the way he should go. So that has to do with active teaching and instruction. That's the key word there, train. In order to train, we have to be there for those teaching moments that come up. I remember a visit when I was in another area. And I'd been in the ministry a long time by that time. But you never learn everything. You always learn something new. And I, I learned a lesson. I, I, I just remember it so clearly. And I, I wish that my associate, new associate that was coming into the area had been there for it. I was visiting a, a man who had come to knowledge of the truth and he was wanting to come to church and he he was talking about different things, and his wife was sitting there, 
And it was obvious that she didn't go along with these things. And she was bringing up all these these questions, and she was very contrary uh, toward everything. And after about an hour of seeing the interplay between the two, I, I realized something, that she wasn't against the truth. She was against what she was seeing in her husband in relation to the truth, that, that he spent all of his time studying, and he was neglecting his wife. And it, it was such a light bulb moment that the problem that you're looking at is really not the problem. The real problem is something else. So I, I waded into that one, and I think she was happy. He was not the last time I saw him. But, you know, it's one of those things that you have, to, you have to spend time with people. You have to be there. Now, that was a lesson that I learned because I was there dealing with the situation. Uh, maybe somebody else would have picked up on a long time before that. Maybe they wouldn't have had to wait so many years to learn the lesson. But you can't plan those situations. Like I said, I wish that I'd had my new associate who was just coming into town. I wish I could have had him on it because that would have been a teaching moment for him. And I've heard people say over the years, well, uh, quality time is more important than quantity. Well, you could argue that a lot of different ways, but the fact of the matter is, and many many authorities will mention this, that the amount of time is quality time because there are situations that will come up over a period of time that you can't just plan for. You can't say, okay, I'm going to give my kids a half hour today and I'm going to teach them this, this, and this. No, there have to be circumstances in life that come up that you can teach them in a natural situation. And I've known too many parents that thought that it was more important to go out and get rich or at least to be able to give their kids more physically than to spend the time with them. I remember one time a parent was very open about that, that they they were sacrificing their children. They didn't say they were sacrificing, but they were neglecting them. And neglecting them. Again, they wouldn't use that terminology because they had to get away, get ahead, so that they could give them more in the future. And they lost all their children, as far as I know. None of them stayed with the truth. And they had their, their difficulties and their problems. Your kids need you. They need mom and dad. And you have to be there. Proverbs 27 and verse 23 says, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. You've got to know the state of your flocks and your herds. Now, that has to do with on the job, if you're a a rancher, if you are a a shepherd. But it also has to do with, you know, as Paul said, is God interested in cattle or sheep or is he interested in people? He's far more interested in you and I knowing the state of our flocks and our herds. We tell our ministers they need to get out and they need to visit the members so that they know what's going on that way, so they can be there for the members. When things come up, they'll be able to answer their questions, and they'll feel comfortable coming to their minister. The same thing with our children. We have to spend the time uh, and be there. There's a timely commentary on our website today by Mr. Davy Crockett. It says, if it was easy, and I would encourage you to 
go on the website and look at that. And if you don't have a copy of it, don't have a computer, then perhaps uh, one of the ministers can get that to you, a hard copy of it. Very interesting commentary by Mr. Davy Crockett. I'll refer to it here a little bit later. But uh, we need to move on to our next point. So besides setting the example and taking the time to teach or instruct, the third point is we must have just and godly discipline. And it must not be neglected. We must not neglect just and godly discipline. Now, there are a number of points I'd like to make as subpoints under this. One is, one of the principles I, I've always tried to follow in terms of our summer camps, working with them, is never reward bad behavior. It makes no sense to reward bad behavior because usually it doesn't help that person that you're rewarding as bad behavior. But what it does do is discourage others who are trying to do what's right. Some people bribe their children in an attempt to curry their favor. Well, I'll give you this or I'll do that. I, I remember a, another one of those light bulb moments. I was working under a camp director at the time, and we had a situation where some of the staff had done something they shouldn't do, and it came to my attention. I passed it on to the director, and he said, uh, he got everybody together, the staff together, and he said, what can we do so that you don't do something like this again? Boom. I, I realized this individual I've been looking up to for some time, no longer with, with uh, the church, this person I've been looking up to really didn't know anything about child-rearing. Why would you ever reward bad behavior? That simply reinforces the fact that, well, if we want something, we just do what's bad. And then he turned her over to the bad cop, which I was at the time, always was in that role, and had to then try to bring some reality to the situation of what could have happened and what that effect would have been upon the church. So never reward bad behavior. Sometimes somebody thinks, okay, this person's got problems, so I'll make him head of Spokesman Club. Maybe he'll do what's right. Parents sometimes do that with their kids. Sometimes, like I say, even in the church I've seen that happen, where the bad people, the people that are doing the wrong things, are the ones who are promoted and rewarded. And all that does is discourage those who are trying to do it right and those that you try to save by rewarding them it rarely works in the end. Have you ever seen people laugh at their child who's showing off or otherwise misbehaving, thinking it's cute? You know, a child showing off, if, he's, if we laugh as though he's trying to get our laughs, what does he do? He's going to want to do the same thing more often. We need to be very careful how we how we deal with misbehaving. My father, who was a first sergeant in the military, which means that he, he was over about 500 men at the time, uh, toward the end of his career, and he was responsible for discipline 
He was responsible for a lot of other things, uh, everything from social activities to making sure everybody had proper housing and budgets and all that sort of thing. Uh, Dr. Kermit Nelson, who was the site, uh, was the uh, camp director at Orr, Minnesota for a number of years. Rudolph Giuliani, of course, the mayor of New York City, who uh, lowered the murder rate in a period of about four years from nearly 2,000 down to five or 600, which is still awful, but made a huge difference. And prison guards that I've talked to all have one thing in common. All say the same thing. And that is, stop the small things, and you don't have to sweat the big things. Stop the small things, and you don't have to sweat the big things. Now, that's what we're seeing in our society today. We're saying, you know, defund the police, don't make stops anymore. I'm not trying to justify uh, those who have misbehaved. But Giuliani realized that if you stop the small things, it's called the broken window theory. And you can read about it. You just look up broken window theory. But anyway, the turnstile jumpers in the subways, you know, they would not want to pay, so they just jump over the turnstile. Or those who are squeegeeing your windshield when you came into town at the traffic light, and then they would expect a tip before they do the other side, and if not, they might spit on it. He, he realized, on your windshield, uh, he realized that if they stopped those things based on the broken window theory, that things would get better, and they did. Because people realize that if I can't get away with this, that I better not try something more serious. But now, in California, in Los, uh, not Los Angeles, but San Francisco, they've basically said that shoplifting is a small thing. We don't have to worry about that. Anything under 900 and some dollars, whatever the figure is, we won't even prosecute. So what happens? People come in with impunity. So is it Walgreen or is it uh, CVS, one of those drugstores? They've simply pulled out of San Francisco because they can't afford to stay in the business. It is absolutely insane what our world is doing. And the principle applies in child-rearing, in uh, overseeing any group of people, whether it be prisoners or whether it be camp or whether it be in the home. If you stop the small things, you don't have to sweat the big things. In Luke, the 19th chapter, Jesus brings out this principle, a little different context, but it's still a principle here. And verse 17, Luke 19:17, this is where uh, the, the parable of the minas, and he says, in verse 17, he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. You are faithful in something small. I know I can trust you in bigger things. In other words, little things do matter. They matter a lot. And we have to make sure that we deal with the little things, not just wait until something is big. In Ecclesiastes, the 8th chapter, and while you're turning over there, you can think about that. A stitch in time saves nine. 
A small fire, if you put it out early, won't grow into a big fire. A six-year-old who's out of control today, if you don't get control today, what's going to happen when he's 16? If you can't control him now, how are you going to control him when he's 16? And you see that sometimes where little kids are in control. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11, it says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, in other words, you don't deal with the issue quickly, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So when they get away with one thing, they know they can get away with something else. And it just continues to escalate from there. There's another passage of Scripture that is... uh, Relevant over in the book of Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6 and verse 19. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. When we allow within ourselves or when we allow uh, amongst those that we have uh, support over to get away with lawlessness, do something that is totally wrong, then it just simply leads to more lawlessness. And because sentence is not executed speedily against an evil work, then it just it continues to escalate. So these are principles, these are biblical principles that can be applied when it comes to child-rearing. Now, this being said, when it comes to children, understanding and balance is essential. Very important to have proper balance. And this is why I say that I I could be a lousy parent because I don't know if I would be able to to carry it off. Um, To to be able to... uh, Keep things in in right control, uh, the right balance. Here in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, in verse 4, it says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, he says, bring them up in the training. That means teaching, instruction, and admonition of the Lord. But he says, don't provoke your children to wrath. And notice he addresses it to fathers. Because as fathers, we would tend to be a little bit more authoritarian. And we might expect too much and not be as patient as our wives who have been with them all day long. Uh, Wives will tend to, to yell. Fathers come in and they speak with a gruff voice and that's kind of the end of it, uh, because they know that after that comes the, the heavy hand of correction. Uh, but we can go overboard as fathers. We need to realize that children are going to be children, and we shouldn't put up with misbehaving, but at the same time, we don't have to correct everything. One of the examples that my wife and I learned many, many years ago was from someone that uh, that we worked under, and their, their first child, they did a really wonderful job up to a certain point. But they communicated with one another 
about what they wanted to train this child in. They, obviously, they didn't want her running into the street. If she did, she'd get a little bit of hand-to-bottom combat where she would learn that this is not the thing to do because they would, imp- they would impose a, a, uh, an, an artificial penalty, you might say, as opposed to the penalty of reality of running in front of a car. They didn't want her sticking her bobby pins into the light socket. Uh, bobby pins. I don't know if girls use those anymore, but anyway, they do. Okay, so they know what they are. Uh, guys may not. But anyway, they didn't want them sticking into the light socket where they could get a terrible shock. They didn't want them touching things that were red hot that they could get severely burned on. Now, maybe it was just a little bit on the warm side. They might let them touch it to find out that, yeah, Mom and Daddy know what they're talking about. But uh, there were certain things that they... But they didn't want to discipline her if she happened to spill her milk at age four because kids do that, not because they want to. Now, if she pushed it over, that's one thing, but if they just get careless, why? You, you don't have to focus on those things. You focus on the big things that are important, which is basically safety at that age or attitude where they're in a rebellious attitude and, you know, throw themselves on the floor and throw a fit in Walmart. Uh, you've got to deal with those things. But we don't want to provoke our children wrath. So the, the husband and wife would discuss her behavior and so that they were all on the same page or both on the same page where they would discipline her for certain things, but they would let other things go uh, because they could teach that later on. That was not important at that stage in her life. And it was a, a wonderful example. In Colossians, it says something very similar. Colossians 3 and verse 21. It says here, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We can discourage our children where they can't do anything right. Now, sometimes mothers are that way, too. Some mothers are always, you know, correcting them, don't let them do anything. But generally speaking, it's talking about fathers here because we could have more of that tendency uh, to, to fall into that error. So don't be such a perfectionist that your kids give up trying. And usually the first child parents are more harsh on, more strict on because they want everything to be just perfect. And after two or three, they realize that, okay, the kids are just not going to be that perfect. But the first one is usually the one that parents try to make perfect. You know, it's okay for them to make mistakes, not to be rebellious, but to make mistakes. And one thing that we should never do is belittle our children or anybody else's and tell them, well, you're good for nothing or you're going to grow up and, and be, you know, thus and such. Do not belittle our children. Always treat them with respect if you want them to treat us with respect. Now, that doesn't mean you don't correct them or discipline them. There are many different forms of discipline. The one that seems to be the most common today is what's called time out. Uh, I, I find that it's, that seems to be the solution every, to everything especially in schools, time out. We, we fixed up a, a school that had been flooded during the uh, flood of, what was it, uh, 93, I think it was, 93. Yeah, I think that's what it was, Great Midwest Flood. Um, 
Some people still remember that in Kansas City. We worked at the school, and they, the teacher had a bathtub. It's an elementary school that she had in the corner because that was time out. You sent them to the bathtub. Uh, it used to be you put them in the corner, face the corner. Now, we've always had time out. We just didn't call it that. It was <laughs> go to your room. Go to your room. I remember uh, a mother telling us many years ago there as a child that, uh, that they had three children, two girls and a boy, and, and they had willed them to my wife and me in case something happened to them. We had a number of children that were willed to us, and, and very thankfully for the children, for the parents, and for us, uh, they all survived. All the parents survived, so that was good. But this one, uh, one boy was quite a, quite a piece of work. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't a bad kid. He was just, he was just one of those really interesting kids. And so, uh, he was five years old and his mom sent him to his bedroom. And as she happened to walk by a little bit later, she heard something inside. The door was just slightly cracked and so she went over there and, and opened the door and looked and he was laying on his bed on his stomach with his hands like this. And he was singing a song from Oliver, you know, the, the play, the movie, um, Where is Love? <laughs> that's all I'll sing of it. That's all I know of it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, how cute would that be? Now, you wouldn't want to laugh in front of him, but nevertheless, uh, you know, that's time out. Go to your room. That's one form of discipline. One that many of us remember from our youth is dad's evil eye. I I don't really remember exactly what it looked like, but I do remember that if we were with other people at the time, and I happened to look up and my dad was looking at me a certain way, it meant you better not continue doing what you're doing. And I think that many of us can still remember that. Whatever dad's evil eye looks like, it's just that look that you know that uh, stop doing what you're doing. There's withdrawing of privileges. It's another form of discipline, withdrawing privileges. I remember Mr. Herbert Armstrong talking about it uh, one time up at the summer camp. It was 1983 at the summer camp in Orr. And there was just a few of us in a a small cabin there. I believe it was the last time I remember seeing him in person. Uh, but he said, we often use the negative when we can use the, the positive. He says, rather than saying to your, your children, uh, if you don't do your chores, you won't be able to go to Carowinds. I'll use that as an example, amusement park. Uh, he said, you know, if or when you get your chores done, we'll go to thus and such. It's, it's using the positive as opposed to the negative. Some of those things just stick in your mind. Another form of discipline is grounding, or as uh, we had a neighbor up in Asheville, uh, Glenn, five, six, seven years old, called it groundation. Um, then there's Lee Iacocca, a very good book, I imagine a lot of our young people don't know who he was, but he was head of Chrysler, very high up in Ford as well. Uh, he was an individual who uh, was very influential just uh, not too long ago, a couple decades ago especially. 
has a book called Talking Straight. I would really recommend it. Very easy read, very enjoyable read. But it's mostly, here. you'd think it's talking about cars, and yes, he does talk a little bit about it in, along the way, but most of it's about family and about raising his daughters. And he talked about how he had a rule in his home. For every minute you came home late, it's one day of groundation or grounding. And he said they had a, a cousin that was staying with them one summer, and she always had these wonderful excuses as to why she came in late. And finally, she came in about 22 minutes late, which I guess is the longest time. You know, that she might come in five minutes late, but, well, you know, somebody has uh, an accident or whatever. He said he realized she was just conning him. She came in 22 minutes late, and he ground her for 22 days. That will put, put an end to that. Now, whether you agree with it or not, that was his rule. But it's called grounding. And I think that many parents have used it. Uh, there is this approach found in today's commentary by uh, Mr. Davy Crockett on if it was easy. I thought this was an interesting approach, a form of discipline. Talking about teenagers at this point, he, that is his stepfather, Davy uh, Crockett's stepfather, also kept us in line in other ways. That's beside the chores that they constantly had, where he was always teaching them how to change tires, how to paint, how to do all kinds of things. He says, as teenagers, if we stayed out too late, he would not fuss about it. He would simply get us up an hour or so earlier than usual to get to whatever task he had for us that day. About mid-morning, he would say, I hope you had a good time last night, but you might want to get home when... You're supposed to, so you don't have to get up so early. As you might imagine, we complain bitterly about the difficulty of our many tasks. He would listen, then respond with, Boys, if it was easy, everyone would do it, but very few do. We heard that often. You know, that's the teaching of a father. And it's... A form of discipline, you might say. It was a different form of discipline. Obviously, that might be different from different age groups and different children. You know your children and how responsible they are or they are not. But that's something that you have to work out. Then there comes spanking. Now, for some people, spanking is a panacea to everything. Anything wrong, bang, bang, bang. For other people... Spanking is cruel, unusual punishment, and it should never be done. And so spanking, even in the church, is controversial. But I ask the question, why? Why do we believe, do, do we believe what the Bible says, or do we believe the, quote, experts who change their theories every, you know, every 10 or 20 years? They go back and forth. What does the Bible say? Proverbs 22, verse 15. I'll just read these for sake of time. Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. I used to read that. The rod of correction, I'd think, oh, man, this is taking a club or something. A rod, really, probably more like a switch, something that's really going to sting. I never had this happen, but I know that some of you here, obviously, 
I say obviously, I don't know if it's obvious, but some of you here I'm sure had this happen where they sent you out when they did something wrong to bring back a switch. A little twig, I see a head or two nodding. And, you know, a few on the bottom really sting. Wouldn't do any lasting harm, but it would sure sting. That's more of what he's talking about, a rod. He's not talking about something that, you know, a blunt club. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, or spank him with a rod, this is, you know, the old King James, and uh, it doesn't really, or this new King James, but it doesn't really give the sense of it. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You're not going to kill him. Now, if, if you are going to kill him, you've obviously gone too far. If you're going to do lasting harm, if you're going to put bruises and all kinds of things like that, you've gone way too far. In most states, here in the United States, you can still spank with the hand. Anything else depends on where you are and what you do, I suppose. But uh, spanking with the hand is, is legal in most places, and you need to know what's legal and what's not. In Sweden, I think any kind of corporal punishment is, is against the law. And people have to decide what they're going to do on that. Proverbs 29:15. The rod and reproof give wisdom. They kind of smarten us up. But a child left himself brings shame to his mother. I'll just say that I got a few spankings growing up, and I didn't get nearly as many as I should have. And I think most of us are in that category. But there have been those who have gone way overboard. And that's totally wrong. Now, here's some principles of discipline. It must be fair and fit the crime. If a child makes a mistake, uh, you know, it's different from a child who's rebelling. A child who's rebelling or lying, that would require a little bit more discipline than, say, someone who just made a mistake. Uh, spilling his milk after he's, you know, 10 years old, uh, being careless, well, that may be he doesn't get another glass or, you know, whatever you're going to do. I don't, I don't want to tell you what to, to do on that, but there may be a fitting punishment. There may be a need for punishment to be a little bit more careful, but that's not the same thing as someone who deliberately does something or is in rebellion or is lying. So it must fit the crime and it must be consistent. Consistency is so important. Uh, I've talked to guards in prison before, and I remember one or two that were there. You're waiting to see somebody, and you're in the kind of a holding area, and sometimes you get talking to these guards. And uh, I, I remember on one occasion they said that the most frustrating thing for a prisoner is inconsistency, where one guard does things one way, another guard does it a different way, and so they can get away with it with one guard, and they can't. They, they never really know where they stand. And this is important between a husband and a wife and with you as an individual that you have to be consistent. So you, you don't discipline a child for doing something wrong and then the next time he does it, he gets away with it. And the next time he gets spanked for it or, or put on uh, uh, grounding or whatever it might be, there has to be consistency. And it must cause pain. Sorry about that, but it must cause pain, whether it be emotional from being grounded or whether it be a spanking. I remember a little boy, I'll say Billy, that's not his real name, but he was 
kind of a cute kid, but he was totally out of control. It was a broken relationship. The mother had no idea what to do with him. She'd bring him to services, and I remember one time we had these tables that was kind of like a boardroom, and he would be running underneath, and she'd come around, and she'd try to get him, and he'd run back or crawl back. And here, here I'm giving this sermon, and all this action's going on. Next thing I know, he's got his arms wrapped around my leg. And I told him, I won't use his name, but I said, Billy, that's a different name. I said, get back there. And I said it in such a way that he knew I, I meant it. Um, my wife and I were visiting this lady one time, and she said something that was really quite interesting. She said, I know that it's wrong, but I hate my son because he was so out of control. And so we began to talk to her that, look, you need to get control of the situation. He needs to know who's boss. And so I explained to her about the proper form of, of uh, spanking on the bottom and so forth. And I said, you know, he's just there on the floor. I said, you just told him to do something, and he didn't do it. That's when you need to spank him. So she, she actually went over there and picked him up, and she spanked him, and he screamed and yelled. And, and I, I said to her, you know, all you've done is make him mad. You've got to spank him hard enough to break that spirit of rebellion to where he's hurt. And you know what? She actually did it. This is a rare thing. She actually did it. And next thing you know, he wanted to be in her lap. You know, within a matter of just a very few months, that was one of the nicest little boys you could ever imagine. He'd come to church dressed up. He obeyed. He, his mom, he was not a problem anymore. She got things under control. It's one of those wonderful times in, in the ministry where somebody actually does, actually follows the advice and you see the beautiful results of it. I don't know what's ever happened to them. I, I think that she, she left the church. Uh, I, I think that this little boy is probably better off in spite of that fact. But she had a lot of problems and uh, just didn't, um, didn't stick with it. But at least for a time, uh, this little boy had some, some ground, some, some barriers beyond which he couldn't go. I want to give the last point here very quickly, and that is learn from the instruction and example of others. Point, the fourth point, learn from the instruction and example of others. I remember Mr. Herbert Armstrong explaining very early on, and I did not understand it at first, but he says, discipline for disobedience not to make a child do something. I, I found that very difficult to understand. What does he mean by that? Discipline for disobedience, not to make him do so. In other words, you tell him to go to his room and he doesn't go to his room. Don't you want him to go to his room? Well, I didn't understand it for a long time until I began to see certain circumstances where that would apply. The first thing is you discipline or you spank or you ground them because they disobeyed. Now, you say, go to your room, and he doesn't. You discipline. Now, if you don't command them again, you don't have to discipline them again because you get children sometimes, they get confused in their minds. They, they just aren't going to do what you tell them to do, and they don't even know why in some cases. 
And so you, you discipline them for the disobedience. And then you don't command, you change the subject or change the dynamics. And then you deal with it again later. But you don't want to get in that situation where you're, you know, spanking and, and it becomes abuse. Think about it. And I think you'll see situations like that. You discipline for disobedience. Now, you hope that they'll do what you told them to do then, but there will be other days and there will be other situations where you work with them, and you can break that spirit of rebellion over time. Another lesson that I remember from a fellow minister, he said, we let them, his, his uh, children, boy and a girl, make decisions that would have no lasting harm. And he explained how with his daughter, when she was six or seven years of age, she had a favorite dress, and she always wanted to wear it everywhere. And so she'd want to wear it to a party, say, on, on Thursday night, and mom would say, well, Friday's not our wash day. It won't be washed till Monday, so you can wear it to the party or you can wear it to Sabbath services, but you can't wear it to both. They let her make decisions and live with the consequences of those decisions. And so the first time she called mom's bluff, and mom stuck to her guns, she learned that mom means what she says. Mom didn't lie to me. She means what she says. And they learned that there are consequences for their decisions. Their son wanted these big boomers in his car, and his dad tried to talk him out of it, and finally he said, well, it's your money. You can do whatever you want to. So he went ahead and got them, and after about three months, he realized he'd spent a lot of money, and they didn't really satisfy so you can allow your children to make decisions that are not going to have long-lasting detrimental effects. Another family, this is the one that, where the fellow was a, uh, had an engineering firm, very successful. I asked him one time when he was still, uh, before he even got married, I said, did you get a lot of spankings at home growing up? And he said, no, we, we really got very few. But we never doubted what God thought about something and that he would back it up if need be. Now, his dad was about 6'5 and reminded me of John Wayne. <laughs> Not all of us have that advantage. But we can still be the same way. They know where they stand. And one last point here along this of things that I've learned over the years from other people, and that's by observing when people have trouble, when they run into trouble, their kids are out of control in some way or they're misbehaving and getting into trouble, what do people do? Well, they often want advice, don't they? And where do they go for advice? With other people who are having trouble. Now, that might sound like, well, that's good because they're having trouble. Well, I'll learn from them. You know, the best place to go is somebody who's not having trouble. Because they must be doing something you're not doing. But what happens is people go to others who are having similar problems, and then they commiserate with one another and blame the schools, blame peer pressure, blame everything else, and then they can wallow in their own self-pity as, well, it's not our fault, nothing we could do. It's all stacked against us. I've noticed that over the years, that people will not go to someone who could help them. To say, you know, I've got this problem, what would you do about it? How do I solve this problem from someone who is being successful? 
You know, there's so much more that can be said on this subject, just a huge subject, and like I say, we don't hear nearly enough sermons on it, especially with the congregation that has so many young people and the church in general. But I hope you'll use our free resources. Uh, Why Kids Go Wrong is in the May-June 2017 Tomorrow's World. It's an article I wrote that, again, was based on really what I learned from someone else. It wasn't all original thought at all. In fact, most of it was not. Plagiarism is our most important product. I mean, after all, the Bible is, uh, when we read it, it's plagiarized. Uh, We have Successful Parenting, God's Way by Dr. Fall. I hope that we'll take that into account. But whatever a man sows, he's also going to reap, and this applies not only to other areas of life, but it also applies to the raising of children. We're going to reap what we've sown in our child rearing. So I'll end with what Mr. Crockett said that his stepfather taught him. He says, boys, if it was easy, everyone would do it but very few do.